that's one of the reasons I didn't leave the first, when the when when COVID first hit New York. My daughter came over and said, um, I'm leaving. I'm going to stop by and say goodbye. She left and went to the suburbs with her husband. But um, she asked me, are, are you going to stay? And I thought for a minute, I could go somewhere else, I suppose. I could go out to Long Island. And then I thought, yeah, I'm going to stay here. I'm, this is what I know. I know the stores. I know... You know, we had we have our pets and all of that. So, um, so yeah, we ended up staying, and we probably will end up staying, regardless of what happens. But it is something that we we have thought about mostly in terms of that context. I'm based in Queens myself, which you know was obviously about as hard hit, or probably more hard hit than any other place in the country around yeah. you know late March, mm-hmm. early April. Certainly, I was going through some of these these scenarios in in my brain, and one of the things that I kept coming around to was like. It is a place like New York worth living in when you don't leave your apartment or don't leave a one or two block radius? The space that we are confined to and we are confined to a space is is a lot more claustrophobic than it would be in a lot of other places in the country. I totally get that. And if I had a child, I might be thinking the same way. I mean, we have a dog, which is not like, you know, it is, it is like a child, but not really like a child. Um, so, uh, the fact that we, we can go to Central Park is huge. Um, and now that it's opened up a little bit and we can go to one or two restaurants and eat outside, um, that's great. You know, I miss going to the Met, uh, uh, but I'm still here because I, I love it. And, you know, the park is awesome. I've been crossing the bridge a fair, fair amount myself, you know, I'll take long walks in the morning and walk across the 59th Street Bridge and the the park. And it's not that I ever took Central Park for granted, because I think it's impossible to take Central Park for granted. (laughs) When you literally can't do anything else or go anywhere else, you really do come to appreciate how lucky we are to have a resource like that in the city. Yeah, I never really thought about it. Um, As a kid, I went to Riverside. That's uh, we lived more over there. And so that was our local park. For some reason, we never made it over to Central Park unless my stepfather was playing a softball game or something, you know, and I think we thought of it as too commercial and everybody went there. All the tourists were there. So um, Riverside was our place. But once we discovered Central Park, it's like being in a painting every day. It doesn't matter what the weather is. It's it's that beautiful vision of the 19th century uh, brought to life um, every single day, the winding paths. And now that they have the beautiful lamps that actually kind of fit the era and they don't have the chain link fence anymore, they've got those uh, black steel bars that are, again, more of the time period. It's, it's, um, it's something I've really become attached to. Isn't that a funny way of phrasing things that once we discovered Central Park, you know, once we discovered <laughs> this gigantic park, like right, right, this gigantic famous park right in the middle of, of the city. And I wonder, this is something that I've been coming back to a lot lately over the past six months is whether living in New York makes us even more prone to compartmentalizing things than we would be otherwise. That in order to kind of survive in the city, you do have to have the blinders on to some degree and you do kind of have to shut out a lot of the a lot of the noise. Yeah. Uh, and for a long time, I'd say Central Park was one of those things I shut out because of the way it was not taken care of in the 70s. It was kind of a horrible place to go to by yourself if you were a girl and, and a teenager. There were a lot of drug addicts there, a lot of people dealing in drugs and homeless people living there, uh, graffiti all over. The, it was a dangerous place to be. So for years also, I was like, no, I'm not going there. That's um, 
you know, that's, it's, it's dangerous and, and weird. And then that all changed in the 80s. But uh, yeah, I still find that there are things that one compartmentalizes. You know, the homeless situation is getting worse and the mentally ill, uh, which often goes hand in hand sometimes with the homeless situation. It's no one wants to be the kind of person that just blocks it out. But sometimes you have to to it because getting from one place to another but i always feel a, a prickle of this you know uh of, of that like no one wants to be that kind of person that can just shut that out i lived here after 9 11 so um obviously you know having lived here since the 60s you've experienced a lot of different cities that i haven't to in the, the time yeah. since I've, I've been here um you know I, I do find that when i talk to people who were here in the 70s and 80s that there tends to be a bit of uh, romanticization when it comes to the kind of the gritty side of the city is that do you do you find yourself feeling nostalgic or like missing some of the kind of the dirtier grittier new york uh i must say no i don't um (laughs) and part of it is because i live i don't want to tell you where but i live relatively near where i grew up um and it's still pretty it's pretty gritty around here i mean um you know, if you're on the Citizen app, you get your your little pings all day long about what's going on out there, stabbings, shootings, uh, box cutters, a sword on Broadway, you know, just like crazy things like that. The other thing is that a lot of the people who romanticized this, the New York in that era were older than me. So when I was a teenager in the 70s, these people were already in their 20s. So for them, New York was a playground. You could, you know, squat and you could like experiment with drugs or like go to different clubs and do all this kind of thing. Um, I had some friends who were doing that sort of thing, but I was really more looking for a job. I mean, I, you know, was the kind of person who was, uh, you know, I worked. <laughs> so, I, you know, I wasn't going to be like out there taking drugs and, and, and trying to squat in some place. It wasn't fun to be a kid in the 70s. Um, trying to be a messenger, for example, which I was on 42nd Street. You know, there was very little that was amusing um, about all of that. So I don't really feel nostalgic for it. Um, and, then, and then being a mom, I felt, uh, you know, I was concerned for my daughter, grow, what kind of city was she going to grow up in? She was very independent. You know, as a teenager, she was taking the subways and... and um, you know, which I, I was proud that I could raise a kid who could both take cabs and take a sub, take the subway without fear. Um, so I wanted a safe city for her. You alluded to this a little, a little bit earlier when speaking about COVID specifically, but, you know, obviously when a lot of people have kids in the city, they, they have that conversation about whether or not they do want to move out and kind of give, give their children a little bit more space than they would have otherwise. Was that Was that a concern that you had once you were going through that? Oh, I felt that that there was no real, uh, I had, I never thought about moving away. There were times where I rented a place out of town and eventually bought a place to be out of town if we wanted to go there for the summer or something like that. It never occurred to me to go. (laughs) I guess I had figured out certain things about her education and those things were working and she had friends and we had a support system here in the city. So uh, I, I never thought, would it be better to go somewhere else? I just assumed it, it wouldn't be. I'm on the Citizen app too, and <laughs> I, <have> a, <laughs> well. I, 
I very much have a love-hate relationship with that app where I'll just like install it for long periods of time. I don't know whether if you were an alien landing from Mars or Toronto or something and, and your only orientation with the city, your only context for the city was a citizen app. I think you'd have a very uh, lopsided view of what yeah. the crime is like in New York. Um, well, I wonder sometimes myself, like, uh, when did all this begin? I mean, it was this going on all the time and I just didn't know. I mean, because now I know. And sometimes I think, are these things real? And I think they are real because occasionally one or two will poke through into the newspapers. So, uh, yeah, it's it's wildly entertaining and also completely bizarre. People will argue about whether there were actually gunshots or maybe they weren't. Maybe it was a car backfiring or maybe it was fireworks, you know, and then you get the barrage of people's opinions um, flowing through de Blas, yeah, de Blas and all the various nicknames they have for him and all the, the political sort of streams that run through everything and all the grumblings and complaints and the different ways that people bait one another and the way they use language. I mean, really, I, I could write an opera <laughs> called Citizen, but then I'd have to steal everybody's, uh, you know, I'd have to I'd have to give up all the royalties, you know. What, what is your sense of, like, for you personally, what the value is in that? Is it just... Um... Is it just entertainment? Is it just a chance to kind of like be a, a voyeur? No, I want to know what's going on. Uh, I want to know what's going on in my neighborhood and what times of day these things are happening. And is there a pattern? Um, and am I going to be affected by this? And is my husband going to be affected by this? Like, uh, and who are these people <laughs> who are doing these things and why? Uh, you know, all that stuff, it matters to me. These younger, they say that it's sort of a lot of it is gang related. Um, so I'm thinking gangs. That's so 1959. I mean, wh what, are, what are we doing here? And like, why? What are you guys thinking? There's a world beyond your gang and a beyond your turf. There's a whole world waiting. If you have the education to grasp it, if, if you, you know, if you have a vision beyond all that. Um, so there's a there's an element that I want to engage in some abstract way. I mean, you know, not literally uh, run into these guys in the street. <laughs> you know, imagine if I started yelling at them, like, what are you thinking? You know, don't you know there's a world beyond your turf, you gang members? So um, anyway, uh, I don't know. Uh, so it's not just that. It's not just being a voyeur. It's really kind of trying to figure it out. Like, what, what, what is happening? What is going on here? Yeah, I've seen enough videos of white ladies yelling at people on iPhone videos over the past several months that I would uh, I would advise against doing that, Suzanne. Yeah, but it's not like I'm being a Karen and I'm yelling at them to defend myself. Uh, you know, it's more like, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. There's too many white women screaming on uh, YouTube these days and we don't we don't need more of that. So I agree with you. Obviously, in a lot or, or perhaps most ways, the moment that we're living through is basically unprecedented for anyone who wasn't alive for, I guess, like the flu ep epidemic. 1918. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there kind of a, a touch point or a frame of reference for something? Is there, do you feel like you've ever been through anything remotely similar in the city? No, I, uh, for example, I did not live through the polio epidemic. Uh, sure, I myself, sure. I myself came down with the measles in like 1994, which was crazy i mean no one had seen the measles uh and i happened to get a partial vaccine back in the day when i received my vaccine and there happened to be an outbreak of the measles in southern california at the time i happened to be there 
So I was exploding with, uh, with these issues. I had 102 fever and the spots everywhere. And, and when I went to the emergency room, the people behind the desk backed away in horror because they had not seen anything like it. And one of the doctors said, it kind of looks like the old textbook pictures of measles. And they, it was supposedly eradicated in, in the year 2000. And eventually it was confirmed that it was measles. I, you know, I didn't have the antibodies before and then I had them afterwards and they confirmed that with a blood test. But I was the only one that I knew that had broken out in measles and, and no one knew what it was. Uh, and it eventually went away. So it's not really the same thing. We, we don't really know which way the city is going to go, but it's very clear that whatever is happening right now is going to have a tremendous impact on the city. Yeah. So having lived through a number of different periods of the city and obviously, yeah. you know, 9-11 being a huge touchstone, do you get a sense of having lived through something that was as transformative as this current moment likely will be? Well, I guess if there's any, at first I was sort of thinking of 9-11, but 9-11 was sort of a big surprise. It happened all at once. Uh, I was very afraid at the time that it was going to continue, that we were going to, that they were going to continue to attack New York somehow. Uh, and that that never happened, which I was greatly relieved about. Um, so obviously the pandemic is different because it's so insidious and it's 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 affecting the whole country. Um, but it has affected New York, um, and and it's affected it in a very um, dramatic way. But it's slower, and it's and it, and again it's more insidious, and it kind of turns. It, 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 it can turn you against your neighbor. You know, if in the beginning, everyone was very suspicious. Who has it? Who got it? Who, who's contagious? Um, it is a little less of that now uh, because of the metrics that I think Cuomo has been using. So it's a little more predictable. Uh, and now we know if the masks actually work, the social distancing works, the hand sanitizing works, all of it will work if you just do it. Um, so it's eased up a little bit here, but not in the rest of the country. So, I mean, it, it, it has its parallels in some ways, but in some ways it is really, truly, uh, unprecedented. That's, that's interesting. I don't think I've heard anyone quite contextualize it like that, where, again, I, I wasn't here for 9-11, but, you know, I've been, I've been here for a, a number of different events. I've been living in this city for probably 15 plus years now, and, yeah. One of the things that I've always told people, because obviously people have a very clear idea of what New York is like and what New Yorkers are like, but uh, I've found that when when you do need help or you know when there is some kind of big event happening, whether it's a blackout or whatever, that New Yorkers are generally very helpful people, and you know, and they will they will work through something. But this is clear. This is an instance. I mean, you're right, especially in the March-April timeframe where no one was really to be trusted, it seemed like. Yeah, there was always the fear that someone in your building might have it or maybe they left it in the elevator on a button. Everybody was running around wiping things down. So some of that has abated a little bit because now we know it's, it's really more airborne. Uh, but, and there, now there's rules. Like, you know, you don't, uh, it's only one person in the elevator. Most people are taking the stairs. So there's that. Do you get a sense of how this current moment is affecting you as a songwriter? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a couple of other projects that I have that I'm trying to finish up that sort of take precedence over songwriting. But um, 
every so often I'll get a, an idea and I'll start writing it down. Uh, there was the, during that, during the time of the apex, I found myself very obsessed with those numbers every day that Cuomo was st stating at the beginning of each of his briefings, you know, who died, how many people died and where were they? And, um, those numbers that created this kind of weirdly even order. You know, I always wondered, why wasn't it more random? You know, how did it get to be whatever, whatever it was, 799? And it kind of went up there gradually and then started, then it plateaued and then it went down. How did that work so evenly? I, I don't get it. I, I don't, there's like some weird order underlying everything that I found myself mesmerized by. So I started to work on a song called Apex and just, dealing with the things I was hearing, the things I was seeing, the sounds around me, how still and quiet it was. Um, so, you know, I've got a bunch of songs sort of rattling around that are like that. Um, so yeah, at some point I'll, I'll finish them all up and come out with an album, but that probably won't be till 2022. Is that common for you? It, you know, do you feel like that, that, that songwriting is a, a tool that you have or an arrow that you have in your quiver to, process some of these complex feelings yeah yeah it's my way of making sense of things uh but and usually i tend to be very slow i i'm not someone who writes in the heat of the moment generally the beauty and crime album which was about 9 11 didn't come out until 2007 so that was six years and new york was doing really well by then i mean you know it was still in the shadow of 9 11 but it was we had become a, a thriving community again um, pretty quickly after that. You know, you hear all these stories about effortless songwriting. Do you find that there is any relation between the amount of effort and the amount of time that goes into writing a song and the, the quality of the song? Not particularly, although I do find that the best songs, in my opinion, that I've written are songs I've thought about a lot ahead of time. And then in the right moment, I sit down and then I get the whole thing done in like an hour or two hours. Uh, I've had a couple of, of really good songs come out just like that. Um, the songs that you lose interest in or the songs that you end up cutting and pasting are not necessarily as good, but that doesn't mean that the audience doesn't like them. I mean, a song that was very cut and paste for me was Marlena on the Wall, and that became a hit in England. So, I mean, I thought literally no one was going to know what was it about. And, I, you know, I, I didn't think it was all that good. Um, but you know, other people really liked it. So, uh, so that, that, that just goes to show you, you can't always rate your own work. I found that I've had this impulse with things that I put out into the world where when somebody likes something that I think is not one of my best efforts that it, I almost have like a kind of a combative reaction to it, you know, like how dare that be the thing of, of mine that you liked? Do you find that, that you often question what it is that people really latched on to something and why something really resonated with others? Not really. I mean, I just, I just understand that people like it because, you know, they like, they get some meaning out of it and the meaning is really personal to them. Um, I just uh, understand that people, uh, you know, once you write the thing, it's out there. It's like a piece of sculpture. Um, people interpret it. They walk around it they, and they kind of take it for themselves if it means anything to them. And it's almost like what you meant doesn't even matter anymore. It's really the fact it just stands up on its own. Do you think in that respect then that, that 
being a little bit more veils or being a little bit more abstract, it actually can work in a song's favor. Oh yeah. Um, I like that in a song. I, I think that I don't always agree with people who are over very confessional and say, you know, here's what happened. I had this boyfriend and he said this and I said that. I mean, I, because then it's so specific. And unless you're in that exact situation, uh, you, you may not care. Um, whereas if you can play with it a little bit or give it a different spin or a different perspective, um, I just find it's, it's just more interesting for everybody. Are you ever concerned about being too personal on a record? Are you ever concerned about offering up too much of yourself? By the time it gets to the record, I've cut out anything I don't like. Uh, if I stand on a stage and I feel myself shrinking away, if I can't get the words out of my mouth because they're too personal, then I just, I don't sing them. I just cut the verse out way before I've even sung it to anyone, usually. So by the time the album comes out, I'm like, I'm over it already. <laughs> I'm like, here, <laughs> take that. Thanks. Bye. I assume though, that that means that your relationships to songs must be constantly evolving then. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially in the formative moments, you know, there are moments where you're in love with it and you can't get enough of it. And then there's moments where it all cools down and you're like, whoa, okay, wait a second. Uh, and then there's moments where you tweak and maybe you, you know, and, and then sometimes you just lose interest. In, in the instance of something like the new live record, is that an opportunity for you to kind of go back and re-examine these songs? You know, I assume like, I assume that a song, for example, that you've been playing since the 80s is something that kind of just becomes muscle memory at a certain point. Do you lose a little bit of your relationship with, with it when it's something that you've played hundreds or thousands of times? Um, not those songs. Uh, the song Luca is a song I still connect with and, and always have and probably always will. Um, it's not a hit song. Like, it's really not like any other song that anyone has ever had as, as a hit. And, and I know that. And so, uh, no, I still feel it. And Tom's Diner, I still feel it because of it. The, it's crazy journey. You know, it started off as this really minimal existential song about sitting in Tom's and drinking coffee and feeling alone and having a memory. These are all pretty small moments, but in the, you know, these things can have a drama to them. And suddenly it became this like dance R&B hit um, all over the airwaves and people dance to it and everybody has their own memories. So now it's become this wildly popular, joyful end of the set. And so I always look forward to that because that's how you really gauge the audience. Like how, how excited are they by Tom's Diner? Um, do they dance? Do they get up and, and sing with you? Do they do their own hand motions, which a lot of them do? I mean, that's what you want. You want people to be like out of their minds with happiness because you've reminded them of this crazy moment. So those, those are the songs that I still love them. Um, but the other songs that I, I really love doing, for example, Thin Man, which I never had. We never really sang it out that much, but it's a very groovy song and it's a lot of fun to sing. With the very specific example of Tom's Diner. I mean, obviously, you know, you have become, you've, you've come to kind of appreciate what it's become, specifically what that, that, that remix has become and, and really the second life it gave to the song, you know, I guess like five or six years after you put it on, on record. But was it, was it something that you were immediately receptive to? Because it, it was just so different than the idea that you initially put on record. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I liked it right away. Uh, I did. I was charmed. Uh, and if I had not been charmed, if I had not liked it, I would not have released it. But uh, it was my idea to buy it from them, to buy it from DNA and then own it and then release it. And my thought was that it was going to be this little dance club hit, you know, you know, it would get played in dance clubs. That's what I thought. An underground sort of dancey thing. Um, I did not expect it to be like top 40. It was considered an R&B song. I got a, a plaque from ASCAP saying, congratulations, you know, one of the most R played R&B songs in 1990. So I loved it. And I was relieved that it wasn't a parody. You know, they kept the, the lyrics were the same. The melody was the same. They didn't make jokey versions of it. I, it. I thought it was really cool. That must be hard for the first like six months or a year when all these people are coming to a Suzanne Vega show because they've heard this very specific dance R&B song. And then like, and then Sia, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, you're kind of a traditional singer songwriter up there with a guitar. It was weird. Yeah. Was that something you had to like fight against? I had to figure out what to do, but you could see people coming in with their dates and then they were like, what is this? So I don't know. I just continued doing what I was doing. And uh, eventually over time, it all sort of melded together. You know, the stuff I did with Mitchell Froom and DNA and then the later works, it, it all seemed to it mixed together in a, in a good set that wasn't all that folky. So that worked better over time. Uh, it wasn't my intention when I worked with Mitchell to recreate the DNA remix. It was just, it, re it made me realize that I could throw the door wide open and that more people would accept a a more dynamic and radical production. Whenever I do something that people like, like, you know, obviously my first impulse is like, is what worked about that and how, how do I, you know, not necessarily recreate that, but how do I, how do I capitalize on that to some degree? I mean, it must be anytime that you've had something that's really resonated with people. Do you find yourself fighting the impulse to kind of chase whatever that success was? That has never worked for me. Uh, first of all, because, uh, you know, anybody could see that the reason it worked was because they made a chorus out of the ta -ta -ta -tas, which for me, when I did it, was a little throwaway. It was the end of the song. And they took it and they repeated it and they repeated it again. And then they kept repeating it, uh, which in a way, if I, if I had done that myself, I would have been embarrassed. Uh, you know, I would have been like, I, I can't, I, I would not, I, and I've never done it since. I, you know, I just don't do that. Um, so... So there's that. Um, I, I don't sit around repeating those little hooks. Uh, I'm too interested in the narrative, you know, uh, I, and, and all that. So the few times I've tried to make a hit out of a song, it's gone very badly. A, a song like Book of Dreams or something like that. We tried to make that sort of like hooky and, and it just uh, it didn't really go anywhere. What does very badly mean in that case? Uh, well, I, you'd have to look at the charts and all of that. Not that it was a bad song, but just that it didn't resonate in the way that you might have hoped. Yeah, I mean, the, the record company at that moment in time were like, well, you know, we don't hear any singles. You know, it's that old classic thing. So I'm like, yeah, this is the single. This is it. Um, and, and we released it and it went on to the charts and did whatever it did. But it's pretty... It didn't perform, let's put it that way. So, so you, there, there's nothing that you kind of, in all the albums that you put out over the years, there's nothing that you look back at and just feel like that was just kind of a misfire that it, you know, maybe just didn't break through in the way you had hoped. I don't really think about things breaking through. <laughs> uh, I just do them because it's, they feel good or they sound good or they, it's what I meant to say. A song like Caramel, for example, like I was thrilled with that song. Um, I don't know what it did on the charts, but 
definitely it's a song that people love and, and they ask for it. And it may as well have been a hit. It's a kind of hit uh, because they know it. People know it from various places. Do I think of it as a failure? No. Uh, but there, there are some songs I think of as failures, but that's just because I don't like them anymore. Just your, uh, your, your relationship to them has changed to such a degree that you're just, you just I'm don't over think it. they were. <laughs> I'm like, done, gone. So, and that's, you know, I mean, no one's in love with everything that they do. It's sometimes you're aiming for something and you just miss the boat. And sometimes something seemed edgy and cool. And later on, it just seems really tedious or whatever, you know, it's, you constantly, there's a, constantly rearranging it and there's the favorites and then there's the kind of weird ones that hang around by the edges. I think one of the things that that people really love about you and one of the things that's really helped you endure it is that you are really singular in a lot of ways and you don't strike me as somebody who has necessarily gone out of her way to do something because it felt cool at the moment but are there there are instances of that where it's just like hey this might be like a cool thing to do? Uh, I think on Days of Open Hand I did a a song, if you want to call it that, called Those Whole Girls Run in Grace. And it was a very odd kind of thing that I was in the mood to do at that moment. Um, and it's not something that I really do anymore. I don't play it. Uh, some people love it, though. So, you know, just stuff like that. There's a certain degree of uh, experimentation or there's a certain degree of feeling like you've got to perhaps get out of your comfort zone to, you know, continue to be creative yeah and and we definitely felt that during that album during days of open hand uh we had this massive hit with solitude standing i hadn't i myself personally hadn't done anything in particular to make it a make that popular uh somehow the pop world just came around to us i know that but the producers had worked on it, making it accessible, and especially Luca making it radio friendly. Um, and I was okay with that as long as they didn't change the melody or the the songs or the message of the song. Um, but yeah, so my relationship with the pop world and all of that is kind of, uh, I don't chase it. I just don't. You know, I just figured out early on, I'm not one of those people that's going to be having top 40 hits all the time. It's not really what I'm about. You mentioned earlier that there are certain things you're working on right now that are that have taken precedence over songwriting. What, what are those projects? Uh, one is a film uh, that I made of a play that I wrote. <laughs> um, I've basically written one play in my life, and I've been working on the same play for, I can't remember how long now, um, since I was in college. So I finally ended up with the final version of the play, which is called Lover Beloved. And it's a play about the author Carson McCullers. And it had its opening in uh, February of 2018, had a small run in Houston, and basically is, that was kind of it. So before I put the whole thing away to bed forever, I, want, I wanted to make a little film of it. So we, we did that last November. Um, so during the pandemic, we've been working on the editing and the sound and the, uh, and all of that. And it should be, we're nearly finished. It should be finished in about a week or two. What was it about Carson McCullers that was the impetus behind your one, the one play you ever wrote? (laughs) I studied, uh, theater in college. I, I minored in it. I majored in English literature and minored in theater. So it was an exercise. Uh, the teacher said, come in dressed as someone dressed in the, uh, uh, someone known in the arts, someone who's no longer alive, come in ready to field questions as though you're on TV. 
and I had seen her photograph and I had read one of her works. Um, and so I chose her and I just found that I enjoyed inhabiting her, her, her body and her psyche. Uh, she was a really interesting, and I was in my, I was like 19 or 20 and she was a lot of fun to kind of inhabit. So I wanted as a sort of exercise, I wanted to put her life on a stage and I'm not the only, as it turns out, I'm not the only one. There's a, there's like a bunch of plays uh, where she either appears as a character or plays based on her life or books based on her life. Um, so I'm kind of one of a bunch of people doing that. Yeah. So that's, that's how that happened. I loved her politics and I just loved who she was as a person. I felt she was way, way ahead of her time. Will you ever write another play again? <laughs> At this moment in time, I'm like, no, I'm done. But um, <laughs> Uh, who knows, maybe in a year or two, I'll be like, oh, oh, I remember this other idea I had for a play and maybe I'll get around to it. 